everyone. This is Liz Easton, and I wanted to take a quick second to invite you to listen in to the PC Book Club. <laughs> Wait, I need to start again. <laughs> Hi, everyone. This is Liz Easton, and I wanted to take a quick second to invite you to listen to the PC Book Club, a.k.a. PCBC. Every so often, Ricardo Avila and I chat about the books that you should be reading right now. It's just like sitting on your own private book club discussion, only there's probably slightly more references to true crime and Charles Dickens. <laughs> I did not write this. <laughs> um, we may have to re-record that anyway, because I think you just said it's just like sitting on your own <laughs> private book club. She did. That was great. Sitting on a book club. Sitting on a private book club. That's pretty racy. Sorry. Should I try again? It's just like sitting in on your own private book club discussion, only there's probably slightly more references to true crime and Charles Dickens. So if you're looking for the class with an occasional dose of the sass, then check out the PC Book Club right here on the Popping Collars feed. Class and sass. Love it. <laughs> I was praying to the Lord for something. Hi, I'm Greg Knight. Hey, I'm Ryan Parker. And this is PCTV, a popping collar side project where we randomly select a current TV show that you should be streaming right now. Ryan and I have each picked six shows apiece from the top streaming apps. And this month, we're talking about the Max series, The Righteous Gemstones. Righteous. Dear God, today is going to be big. The most watched daytime service of the year. Over six million worldwide. Gemstone. Your whole ministry is set up to serve the gemstones. You should be ashamed of yourself. Well, I ain't. Praise be to he. Why does daddy leave me out of everything? Being leaders, that's men's business. I'm more of a man than Kelvin is. I can argue with you there. <laughs> Ow! Good afternoon, Jesus. Thank you for letting me be born into this world as a gemstone. I grew up in a rural area. What she's trying to say is that she is a poverty person. I grew up in a hard-working, middle-class family. We weren't rich, but weren't poor. And we also don't really care. That's kind of a boring, lame origin story. <laughs> <laughs> Dark forces are at work. Evil forces that wish to destroy our family. The Lord has always had the gemstones back. Messing with a man, the Lord is easy pickings. I refuse to be blackmailed. You kind of are. I mean, that's pretty much exactly what this is. If you go down for this, you better keep our names out your mouth. Mm -hmm. Y'all right. stop trying to step to me. Did you just splash me? Do it again. See what I do. You look dumb with them glasses on. Yeah. Won't even wearing them. It's fashion. Good night. Daytime dummy. Maybe Johnny Caesar was right. Maybe this family has become an abomination. What? Daddy, you just threw Jesus across the room. No, it was a karate person. No, that wasn't a karate person. That was Jesus. This feels like it. Yeah. It's in the title. 
feels like it's in our wheelhouse here a little bit. Uh, Ryan, I got the log be. line for the Righteous Gemstones. Do you want to hear it? You know, I'll, I always want to hear it. Uh, here's your elevator pitch. If I got in an elevator okay. and this is what I gave you, would you buy the show? Okay. It follows All a right, world famous <laughs> it follows a world famous televangelist family with a long tradition of deviance, greed, and charitable work. Only <laughs> if we can get John Goodman and Danny McBride. That's right. Throw in Danny McBride, throw in David Gordon Green. You need like at the very beginning of that, you need from the creators of Eastbound and Down and then do the rest of it, you know. You had yeah, that you would have had me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a good uh, description, although the 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 cap on the end and charitable work, that's... Uh, I would not say that that's what these people are known for. Uh, what does this description leave out? What else do we need to know about the show? Um, profoundly dysfunctional family. Oh, I mean, crazy dysfunctional. Yeah. But I think the big picture items are all there. Greed, um, excess, corruption... Uh, I, I, I'm also, I don't know how, if I'm jumping too far ahead here, so stop me. Like I was reflecting on the show when we realized we were going to, this is what we would talk about. Where is the, or is there any kind of authentic faith to it? Is there a character that exhibits authentic faith? You would have to say Gideon, right? Like, well, well, maybe let's back up. I mean, yeah, yeah. Let's say. I mean, maybe talk a bit more about what this show is. I mean, yeah. it follows Stone Family, which is um, the the kind of uh, patriarch in that family is played by John Goodman, mm-hmm. who is um, an effective and dynamic megachurch pastor, but he is aging. Uh, he has three children who, in their own ways, are vying for control of the empire. In some way, it's like a megachurch version of succession. Right. Um, but they're all they're all motivated. They all have their own unique motivations for participation in the family ministry, not all of which are authentically faithful. Um, and in fact, most of them aren't, but they they also have their own personality quirks, uh, which are played for humor. And uh, John Goodman's care, uh, his character is also the, the character that may have been a person of authentic faith is his deceased wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and it feels like in some real ways, her death infected that family. Yeah, led to its collapse a little bit. Yeah, she feels like she feels like the type of character who kind of had her hand on the rudder, you know, um, mm-hmm. and could have shepherded that family a bit more effectively than than he does. But yeah, so that's what we're that's what we're dealing with. Uh, uh, somebody, I think John Goodman's character is um, Eli, right? I think he is probably as close to a kind of down the you know, down the middle megachurch pastor, but his children are all over the place, right? They want to, they want to maximize profit. They want, they're interested in everything, but kind of leading a congregation. And Eli does feel like he at least is somebody that wants to, to shepherd his congregation. Yeah. I think, uh, John Goodman's character, the patriarch of this Eli gemstone, I think is, uh, he's, he's a divided man, but he's divided into about three parts, you know, He's uh, he's part businessman, he's part sort of con artist, huckster, and he's also part believer. Like he's kind of got these three things going on um, inside of him, and it's hard to know which one's winning out at any given moment. Yeah, um, I would also point. add that this show has, as part of its storytelling device, 
uh, it leans into uh, moments of shocking and and just very ultra violence at times, typically right before the end of an episode, and it'll leave it as like a cliffhanger. Um, but then ultimately, there are no, there are frequently limited consequences to the violence. Like you will, you will find yourself gasping that I can't believe that happened to a character. But then the very next episode, they'll be okay, and you know we're back to we're back to status quo. It feels like it's very very much played for shock value. But I can't believe we're just a couple of minutes into this episode, and you've already touched on a bigger theme that I wanted to talk about, which is violence. And I don't know if that's something we should come back to in the theology corner or not. But I do think it's a um, it's an aspect of the show. But I think it also might be a critique. Of- yeah, let's come back to it in a second. Um, so let me answer this question first, which is why did why did I pick this show? This was my max pick uh, for the year. And Should I ask you, Greg, oh, yeah, why did you pick this show? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's because like I was a, I was a big fan of Eastbound and Down, and I was a big fan of what David Gordon Green and Danny McBride kind of constructed with that show. There's comedies that are set in the South that feel like they're a little out of touch with the culture a little bit. Like it's making fun of it's making fun of the culture. Um, but you can tell that it's from a creator who doesn't sort of naturally come from that culture. And here, this is David Gordon Green and Danny McBride really satirizing, and you can tell really satirizing what it was that they grew up with in South Carolina. And so it has this finger that's firmly on the pulse of sort of South Carolina style life turned up to 11. And I think that that's, um, that's just, it's, it's really smart, but it's also, you know, if you look between the cracks, there's some real indictment of megachurch culture going on here. That's actually for real. Like, you know, it it does kind of look a little bit like this, you know? Um, yeah, and I think that that's, I think that's helpful. Yeah, I do. And I want to hear more about, because you work in a church, not a mega church, but we're familiar with that, that culture. And it has been satirized in other places. But I would be interested to, to know a bit where you think those kind of authentic or real indictments can be found. Uh, you know, the problem, and and I don't know if it was just too much of a good thing, it's what four, third or four, third or fourth season just wrapped, um, or just, but it recently. Those moments when it goes up to eleven are a little cringe for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I would be happy if it was down at an eight, you know. But I, I do like Danny McBride, so uh, I, I find him charming and funny, and I don't really have a problem with the send up of that culture. Mm-hmm. But there are moments where I'm like, okay, that you know, like. I think it's interesting, right? Because, you know, how many shows deal in satire now, right? Like, for for the longest time, this was sort of a staple of, of comedy, was this sort of satirical approach to X. And now I think that, um, you know, I think that most people sort of say, okay, so South Park lives in this world of satire, right? And there's a few other shows that you can kind of put your finger on as sort of, you know, satirical of... Um, the Hollywood industry or, you know, some other major sort of pop culture, um, something going on. Um, but 
you know, when satire works, it's when it leans into the truth rather than leaning into the over-the-top elements. And I think when the Righteous Gemstones works, it's when it's skirting right up to where you're thinking, yeah, that kind of makes sense. That's kind of the vision that I have of mega church culture. Um, and that's that's where, you know, that's where it turns that mirror around on what it is that it's, you know, uh, that it's drawing comedy from. And it really, like, it, you know, I don't know if it's the cringe factor, you know, if it ups the cringe factor too, but it really does get at this idea of, okay, so what master do you serve here, right? Are you are you really a believer or are you trying to sell something? And the Righteous Gemstones does this really good job of walking that line of figuring out when they're when they're trying to sell something and when they actually are wholesomely going into a belief. Um, and the characters are so despicable that it makes it hard to know which direction they're going most of the time. Good morning! Welcome one and all on this blessed Easter Sunday. Praise be to He. Praise be to Now when I say Easter, a lot of images come to mind. The bunny, Easter egg hunts, them marshmallow peeps that taste better when they're stale. <laughs> but the strongest image of all has got to be Jesus Christ nailed on the cross, dying for our sins. Now it is natural to think of Jesus' suffering on this day, but what about the suffering of another man? Somebody you might not think of. What about the suffering of Judas, the man that betrayed Jesus? The very name is synonymous with treachery. To most, Judas is driven by evil, perhaps guided by the devil himself. But try, if you will, to imagine Judas's suffering, the agony he must have felt facing those other disciples, hearing of Christ's torture and knowing it was all because of him. He soiled that which was holy, betrayed his friends, micturated upon his good name, and for what? 30 pieces of silver. It wasn't about the money, oh no. A betrayal such as Judas's cuts much deeper. See, a foe can plan your destruction. But only a loved one can break your heart. Yeah, I mean, I, I, that, those are good points. I mean, I think for me, the um, mammon and the greed is always going to is always going to be. I, I think the one of the best films of the last ten years is Wolf of Wall Street. Right. And this feels like, in some ways, this feels like the Wolf of Wall Street of mega church comedies or you know mega church series right mm -hmm. i had a question i i was taking some notes just asking kind of asking myself some questions about the series when we decided to talk about this one you know i the the commercialization of religion a show that did it, that is this satirical that goes up to 11 so frequently mm -hmm. maybe the the poor series through which to explore that culture in the way that i'm i guess i'm about to pose a question but is 
like is there is there anything authentic about faith ever or like yeah. what a, what does an authentic faith look like in the 21st century right i asked that question about any characters in the show are they authentically faithful what hell what would that even look like yeah that actually gets into my uh theology corner so i may save a little bit of it i would just say that this is what happens when religion meets capitalism right and we talked a little bit about this when we were talking about money and religion back i think when we were talking about dope sick right we were we got into a little bit of that but this is a little more subtle than that this is what happens when branding meets religion and marketing meets religion um and i don't know that churches have models for ways to market themselves that don't look very different from what you know what businesses are doing or you know what corporations are doing and so you find uh churches and especially mega churches opting for you know massive branding um possibility opportunities um gift shops you know just sort of all of these things start to weave their way into the church and then you start to ask yourself okay so what's actually being sold in this place is it connection um transcendence all of the stuff that we would associate with religion or are you trying to sell me on the brand of your church because when i go to your bookstore slash coffee shop what i see are uh you know coffee mugs with your church's branding on them you know it's like so what are, what are you actually trying to do here what is the purpose of your organization um, it's hard to market I, this is going to sound really dismissive, but I'm kind of stealing a quote from a film critic. It's kind of hard to market a crucified Messiah that asks you to sacrifice yourself. Right. Like no church is out here going, how do we market giving away everything you own mm-hmm. and living with the poor? Right. Which to me seems to skew more authentic uh, a bit. Theologically and biblically than anything, and even even the most progressive communities do, right? Because hyper progressive liberal communities are guilty of the same thing, right? We're trying to sell connection. We're trying to sell. We're we are not that, right? right. And but you're still not selling if you have two coats, give away one. You know, yeah. uh, that kind of sacrificial, yeah, lifestyle. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Nobody in our culture dying. Yeah, and I would say that just to go back to your question, and I'll probably unpack this a little bit more later, is that once you start down that road, isn't it just natural? Doesn't it naturally lends its lend itself to hypocrisy? Right? Like you, you once you start down the road of branding your ministry or your church or the things that you do, then you you are naturally kind of working against what it is that you you say you believe and that's that's where the gemstones i think find themselves is in this world of you know the attraction of money and property and all of this stuff but it comes Same. sort of you know in the in the guise of a life of faith which doesn't look mm-hmm. anything like the the message of the savior that they claim to follow, right? The gentle servant, meek and mild, you know, exactly. you're, not, you're not getting me. Yeah. And that's um, hard. I mean, that's been a hard pill for me to swallow period. Like in our own culture where, you know, 
uh, faith in America has become associated with this kind of hyper-conservative, hyper-evangelical. And I know it's not all that. I know this better than anybody else, that it, that's not all it is. Mm-hmm. But even those progressive, more progressive uh, communities have that that hypocrisy is just is to varying degrees. Right. Yeah. And yeah, like there's part of me that's like, I just don't know. And look, I, I have no alternative. Right. I don't claim to have a, an answer. I mean, I think I know how we're called to live and I'm just not living that way. And I, that hypocrisy is something that I have, you know, I'm trying to let go of. No, I, I think that um, for me, uh, I think it's Eric Roberts character that comes in in the second season. You know, he's um, he's sort of uh, I don't know how to quite explain it. He's kind of like a fixer. You know, he's kind of like a, a dirty deeds guy for a for a local wrestling promoter in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, that John Goodman's character is affiliated with. And, you know, he he shows up in the second season and he sees this empire that Eli Gemstone has made for himself. And he has this line of, oh, I see. You're just using the wrestling model to sell religion. It's, you know, it's 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 the old um, it's the old carny, you know, show that he's putting on. It's just instead of wrestling, he's doing religion instead. And there's, you know, that's kind of that's kind of the the point of the spear of the satire yeah. i think of the show yeah yeah well let's get in let's get into the show because you're i think this is a good direction to go where we have the two or three questions that we always talk about that are kind of show related because i think we're gonna have a lot to talk about thematically on the back end of that with the theology corner or i, I don't know what you've got in mind for the industry corner but what what for you is a best scene sequence episode or storyline so you touched on it, which was um, the mom of the family who ends up uh, passing away, uh, played by Jennifer Nettles. So the way that the seasons are structured uh, on the show, they have sort of an ongoing storyline that's set in the present day. But there's always one episode right in the middle of the season that's set in the past. It's a flashback episode. And those are the episodes that Jennifer Nettles will show up on because in the present day, her character has passed away from uh, cancer, I think was what she died from. And so it's those flashback episodes with Jennifer Nettles. Those are the ones that blow me away every single time, especially the first episode where it goes into her relationship to her brother, baby Billy, uncle baby Billy. Uh, the show business that she and her brother were thrown in at a very young age to like sing and dance and entertain churches. Oh, I don't think we're going to take a break yet because guess what? I wore my clogging shoes. Oh. <laughs> Oh, uh, I, I, I think Eli needs to take a commercial break. Just, guess, oh. just leave the dancing to us, Eli. Come on now. The rest of us, we're going to sing and we're going to dance. Hallelujah. Mama told me not to. I did anyway misbehaving. Daddy said don't, but I said I'm going to misbehaving. I'm on a windowsill swimming in the creek. Catching crawdads and playing with a stick. And I got caught shaving. Just two little country kids outside misbehaving. Teacher said, "Don't." It it just kind of shows kind of how uh, 
how a person can go in with sort of faith, belief, optimism, maybe some naivete, and just kind of get swept up in the world of this. And that's kind of where I see Amy's character. She just kind of gets swept up in it. But at her heart, she's still a very good person. And those episodes sort of bring that back. And you're able to see the family in a different light when you realize that she is the beating heart of all of these characters. And because she's gone, they they seem rudderless. They seem directionless, you know. They want to cling to anything they can. And, and, and a fun storyline for me, I don't know if it's my favorite, but when Eric Andre shows up as a uh, competing megachurch pastor, um, Lyle listens, yeah. when, uh, which is a great last name, mm-hmm. when, uh, when Jesse and his wife, Amber, uh, go hang out with this family, you know, because they want to tap into whatever juice they have. That speaks a bit to the branding that you and I talk about, but also yeah. the ways in which these megachurch pastors are constantly looking over the horizon that what's the next big thing or who's who's my competition. And right. you see this a lot with these uh like especially these megachurch pastors had this roster of names up, but everybody knows like the Mars Hill folks and yeah. uh the, the, the hip song hipster, yeah, like, yeah. yeah, like the hipster pastors who like you know, friends with NBA stars and all this kind of thing. Uh, but that that was humorous to me. I don't know if the best, but I, I wanted more of that. That was probably just over kind of trickled two or three episodes. Yeah. I'll transition, though, because you put up uh, for best performance. Uh, for me, it's Walton Goggins, man. Uncle Baby uh, Billy. Want a spinoff? It's just I think he can do no wrong. Goggins like, is that so funny. And he's so funny. He's, I just laugh thinking about his one-liners. I'm not even going to try to imitate it. It's just hands down my favorite part. And, and that's saying a lot because I love Danny McBride. And for the yeah. first, you know, like that was his series. And then and then Uncle Baby Billy shows up and just steals everything. Yeah. I think, I think, he, I think he's incredible. That's well, my – And that's my Goggins does – really well is that you know uncle baby billy is a cartoon character right so i mean he's there for comedic relief he's there for comic relief but he's also a really sinister dude and the way that goggins can switch right he can switch from being the biggest dope on the screen to being like the serpent in the garden you know at the same time and like you need somebody like Goggins who can who can do both of those parts, who can do the clown and what worm tongue from like Lord of the Rings or something. Uh, you need like you need a, a an actor that can sort of flip that switch. And he's really good at flipping that switch, you know. Well, and I'll add a third uh, a, a, a third notch, you know, if you all in that switch. He's also somebody who feels wronged by this family mm-hmm. and, and may have may have a legitimate beef with the family and, and how he's kind of been marginalized, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also has this kind of wounded animal. He can convey that as well. And I think I, he's just a really, really solid actor. I mean, yeah, solid. I mean, great. Actor, I think. Yeah, going back to the the uh, what is it the the structure that we set up last time with Dope Sick, I did mine as a come for stay for. Uh, I do like best yeah, performance. I love that. 
Yeah. So I yeah, came for, for I came to the show for John Goodman and Danny McBride, two actors that I just think are incredible. You know, John Goodman. Uh, gosh, what an amazing, what an amazing career this guy has put together. Right, you're talking about sitcoms, you're talking about Academy Award winning movies, all the Coen Brothers stuff. Like he's just he he's got a really impressive resume. Um, but it also kind of feels like it's subtly, subtly impressive somehow. Doesn't doesn't he also strike you as a guy that would just be a cool hang? Oh like, my god, yes, yes. I feel like he'd be so much fun to just have a meal with and a thousand talk about life. Yeah. So John and, Goodman yeah. and then Danny McBride, who you know, here's the thing: like he consistently does the the one thing. He consistently does like the Danny McBride thing. But it's always funny to me. Like it, it, it's never gotten stale for me. So I'm, I'm big on that. But I stayed for Skylar Gasando, I think is how you say his last name, uh, who plays uh, Danny McBride's son Gideon, the, his oldest son Gideon. Um, in the first season, you sort of think that he's a villain. He's kind of setting his father up for a fall and trying to. He, he's worked out with uh, some friends of his from. Hollywood to steal money from the gemstones, but he has this sort of, uh, I don't know. He has this, uh, crisis of faith. He has this sort of, um, road to Damascus moment where he becomes like this changed person and he goes off on a mission trip and he does all of this other stuff. And, and he's sort of in the background of the show for most of the time, but I think it's at the end of season three where he, he goes to Eli and he says, well, could you help me like become a pastor? And, you know, and John Goodman starts crying, you know, in that moment. And it's a really beautiful scene because I think that I think that he's, you know, it, the way that he plays the character, it's like um, it's like he's coming from a good hearted place. He's sort of the resurrection of the Amy character. And so just seeing that play out in the background of the show, it's just, I don't know. It, it's just really neat. And I think that that kid is sort of effortlessly cool. And I love watching that character. Yeah. Skyler. I like in the film vacation, which I don't know if a lot of people remember with Ed Helms. I think he's, he's funny in that as a, an older brother who gets endlessly tormented by his younger brother. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think you're right. I think he's just got, he's got such a good personality. He can play that kind of, sad puppy dog but he's also funny um and in, the, in that scene that you're talking about or that sequence with john goodman's character eli it is it is moving i mean i think if we want to look at them as bookends that somehow the jesse generation is lost and here comes his son who may have a more authentic expression of that faith move more not necessarily the authentic but certainly more than jesse and his siblings do Right. Mm -hmm. Which is kind of it, it, this kind of cycle, potentially. I don't know, but it is compelling. And yeah. I guess back to fate. What's the we're we're hitting up the theology corner. Oh, I knew I'd find you primping, you slippery son of a bitch. Uh, Eli Gemstone. Surprised you made it down. I know what this is all about. Using Judy like you are. Oh, kind of like what you did with Amy Lee. She had it all now. The looks and the brains, not to mention the moves. And then you showed up out of nowhere from a poor preacher's family, such humble beginnings. And you stole her right out from underneath me. 
But look at you now. Why, you richer than Lee Iacocca. But what about me, huh? The man who was with Amy Lee from the very beginning, what has old baby Billy got to show for himself? Nothing, that's what. Zero. If you think you can get back at me by using my daughter, you got another thing coming. I bided my time, Eli. Now I am gonna get what's coming to me. If you will excuse me. Got to get in the zone. Mama told me not to. I did it anyway. Misbehaving. Daddy said don't. Um, yeah, let's just move on to it. We've already raised a couple of points. What do you... Yeah, I just have one question, which we've already sort of talked through a little bit. But, I mean, it's the ultimate question. Is it possible to participate in modern-day religion as it exists in America and not be a massive hypocrite? Could you say not just modern day, but organized religion? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, yeah. Is I mean, is it possible to participate in church life? You know, whether I mean, not even mega churches, even sort of denominational churches. Like, um, yeah, these, these things organized. are. You know, most of the time, they're built, uh, and their budgets are built in a way to keep the institution going, rather than. <laughs> Um, built in a way to further the agenda of the religion itself, right? And I, I mean, I don't know. Like, like, is it just a is it just a given that if you participate in this, you know, you you're gonna you're gonna be crossing your fingers behind your back, you know, at some point. Maybe it's eighty percent faithful, maybe it's ninety percent faithful, but there's always gonna be hypocrisy built into it somehow. I think that's the perfect question for this series. And I think it's a profound question for all of us that have any relationship to organized religion. It's one that I don't have an answer to. Like I'm not trying to exit theology corner quick, you know, quickly. I, I just, I think that's the question. And I think that may be the eternal question that you, and I think this series allows, allows space for that question to live and breathe. And I just, I don't have an answer. Yeah, you remember think a couple of, a couple of years yeah. ago when we were talking about the Camino, and uh, mm -hmm. and I was talking about you know arriving in in Osobrero, which mm -hmm. is at the top of you know this massive sort of climb um, during the day, and you get to the top of this hill, and you know you're feeling sort of you're feeling like you've you've reached the mountaintop, right? You're having like that mountaintop sort of religious experience. And the very first thing that you hit as you walk into town, there's a church that's, you know, many centuries old that you walk past. And then as soon as you're on the other side of that church, there's knickknacks and souvenirs and all kinds of different things that are there to be sold to you as sort of Camino branded items. And you Enter have this moment where you're just kind of like, what the hell am I doing? Am I doing like a centuries old spiritual pilgrimage or am, am I participating in Spanish tourism? Right. Like it's, it's really yeah. is and like, answer, that's kind of what you the experience. Answer to that, the answer to that is yes. <laughs> and maybe that's it, Greg. Maybe that's our life. And, and maybe other people have, who are wiser um, and older than us uh, would hear this and just laugh. But I mean, maybe that's just the eternal struggle of, we hope that, love and and sincerity and and faith and sacrifice went out over greed and maybe it's just a margins game and we try to make those as big as we can mm -hmm. right that that the distance between 
you know, or, or us participating in those in the good, the true and the beautiful outweighs. And on some days it won't. And then some days right. it will. And that's just that's the life of faith. Right. Is that struggle. Yeah. Um, and and the pursuit of, of better and the good, the true and the beautiful. I want to give you a chance to circle back to the violence part of the show. What yeah, were your thoughts you around the violence? That. Yeah, I, I I hadn't thought about it in quite the way that you did, where just narratively, it just kind of dropped there and it doesn't always have real prolonged implications. But I do, uh, I am thankful for the ways in which these, the, the series creators and the writers include that because there is a comfortability comfortability with many folks in that community the evangelical mega church with guns with violence mm-hmm. uh, with that kind of rhetoric that i think is is highly problematic and so to have a show that takes place in that world for it not to have that would feel inauthentic and it's quite unnerving especially the state of our nation now where those communities are often safe spaces for that kind of dialogue, right? That the, the Christian nationalism is often not exclusively uh, in those spaces. And um, it's highly problematic. And mm-hmm. I know it's played for humor here, but I think it is a reality of that world that is terribly troubling. There, there's something about like the formation of this country and the way that religion has evolved to map onto an American aesthetic, right? You know, it's like um it's like how the constitution is treated it like scripture, you know, by by some people rather than a living document that can be added to or taken away from, you know, at any point. You know, when it when it comes to America and gun culture and sort of like western culture and frontier culture and or even just the way that we envision power, um yeah it's it's bl- all of that has bled into into the religious aspects as well right so i mean it kind of makes sense right as 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 white colonizers are making their way west across this country and and using uh using firearms to do it uh they're also building missions you know to to um indoctrinate uh, whatever peoples are already living on that land. And so there really isn't much of a difference between the gun and the Bible in American history. That's been the, especially in a recent, you know, well, relatively recent move back to the South. That's the hard part of living here. Yeah. Right. And and having, having or trying to be a person of faith, butting up against that, that being such a dominant part of the culture, is just a headache, mm-hmm. you know, be like, this is not, I don't read the life of Jesus and find any permission for this. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't find any sanctioning of this type of ideology, worldview, theology, or whatever. But the 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 ease with which folks can, can move between prayers of wanting to be more like you, mm-hmm. while it's like guns, on, guns and holsters on hips, I just, I'd say the first thing you could do. Yeah, is get rid of that. Yeah, you know, I mean, we've we've kind of been circling around it, but I mean, that it's it's part theology, part just sort of cultural is this idea of religion as a weapon, you know, and like branding as a weapon and stuff. And you know, how do you how do you look at 
you know, a, a good question to ask of pastors around this country is how do you look at other churches uh, that are in your area? Do you see them as partners uh, to what it is that you're doing or do you see them as competition? And frequently, I think that I think that people would see see other churches as competition. Yeah. I think in the South, and, and I don't think it's just exclusive to the South, but definitely it's more a, a bit more prevalent or the odor may be stronger uh, in the South. Where where you attend church says so much about you socially and politically. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's nothing. New, right. But it, it is branding. It's self-branding. Oh, I go to such and such Episcopal church. Well, I can start to form an opinion about how you may vote exactly. or yep. your, your kind of politics or your culture or whatever. But also that that's become married to this, especially in the South, uh, gun ownership. You know, I heard an NPR article recently that said gun ownership really isn't about even hunting or self-defense or anything like that. Now it's become a, a an identifier. Right. Right. Yeah. That this is, this is who I am or this is yeah. what I want to how I want to align myself, how I want others to see me, whether that has any part of your lived experience or not. You know, totally. Um, that's, so that's why when it's similar with religion. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say that's why there's uh, the whole boutique gun industry of like, you know, diamond studded guns and pink, hot pink guns and stuff like that. They have nothing to do with the function of the equipment. They have everything to do with the status of the person carrying it. You know, speaking of <laughs> going to the gun show, let's let's talk industry. Speaking of corrupt industry. <laughs> Speaking of seeing everything else in the world as competition, let's talk about the people that make art. <laughs> no, I, di I didn't really want to get into the whole Max uh, scenario. I, I kind of want to take this moment to think about just sort of David Gordon Green, uh, who was, you know, one of the creators of this show, along with Danny McBride. Uh, I referenced earlier that they also created, you know, Eastbound and Down. They've been involved in comedies together, you know, and stuff. But recently, uh, David Gordon Green has been known for the most recent Halloween uh, trilogy that came out. Um, he he did like a, I don't know if it was a reboot or just kind of a repackaging of the Halloween series and made three movies off of that. And just this past year, he made a remake ish kind of a kind of quasi sequel to the exorcist called the exorcist believer. And so it just, you know, I, it's one of those classic questions that I have whenever someone shows diversity in their art, which is who is David Gordon green? Is he, is he the raunchy comedy guy or is he the horror guy, you know, or I guess maybe in this world, he's both. Yeah, I think you're you make a good point. It's a good question about I think he's both and it's okay to be both and he's going to have varying degrees of success just as if he was just a straight line hardcore horror film director, you know, not everything you're going to make is going to be great. But I, I was listening to a recent podcast, I think it was called The Big Picture. Mm -hmm. Maybe maybe may may, we're talking about the recent Exorcist installment and it kind of said the same thing, who is this? Who is Green? What it kind of trying to make sense of his career. And that's, you know, fine to talk about in terms of industry. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the things I find interesting on um, the Halloween work, he's he's been paired with Scott Teams, who is a, a very well-regarded writer um, who did a lot of work on Rectify, which I think is one of the best TV series of all time. Profoundly spiritual in nature. And Teams is a person 
of faith uh, and who thinks deeply about a lot of the issues that you and I talk about. Yeah, Green is an interesting filmmaker because he moves back and forth between these genres in ways that I think few filmmakers dare to do, right? Not a, not could they do it, but would they even dare to do it? Um, which I think is admirable that he's trying to work across genres in this way. But I definitely like the kind of indie Southern comedy aspect a bit more than I do the horror, but that's just kind of personal taste. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right for me too. Like I like the I like the raunchy comedy stuff probably more than the horror stuff. Although I will say, I thought that last Halloween movie actually had something interesting to say about um, what is evil and how does it, how does it sort of uh, recreate itself? Um, That's cool. You know, I think that, you know, I think that he, I think he, he has some real ideas. You know who I would compare him to is someone like an Adam McKay, right? Who's like Very making, phone, making huh? Will Ferrell comedies, but then all of a sudden, maybe it was the big short, right? Which was like, oh, well, this guy can get serious too, I guess, right? And, um, you know, for a lot of people, I think we've created an industry that tries to lock people down and say, okay, so this person is this, and this person is this, and they do this, and this is the kind of work that they make, and so on and so forth. But... For me, it's the people who sort of go all over the place that I think are the more interesting creators, right? Because they're not sort of tied to one thing. They have, you know, multiple things that they probably want to say, and they have multiple ways that they want to say it. And so um, and so I can see why people would be frustrated with David Gordon Green, especially like, you know, the Exorcist movie wasn't that great. I never watched it. Um, but I heard that it wasn't that great. Um, and people would say like, well, he just needs to focus on doing these comedies instead. But, you know, swings and misses. I mean, sometimes you hit with those swings. Right. And so yeah. I would rather somebody swing and miss and potentially get a hit down the road than just not even try. Right. hundred percent. Yeah. I, I respect that. I mean, I, you know, because he also, you know, you think about films you know, to whether you like them or not, but Your Highness or Pineapple Express, mm-hmm. uh, comedies, you know, kind of raunchy comedies in TV, Eastbound and Down, as you've said. Um, but then he makes a film like Joe, which yeah. is a phenomenal work of filmmaking. It's, it's a it's a beautiful film in its own way, I, I think, in its own way. And if you have if you say to him, only just stick with raunchy comedies, then you don't get Joe. Right. Right now, that's obviously based off a Larry Brown novel, which is really uh, you got great source material, but it made a good film, obviously, thanks to Ty Sheridan and Nick Cage in a great performance. So, um, yeah, I like um, I'm glad that you brought this up in terms of industry, just considering a filmmaker not being pigeonholed into one genre, but uh, taking a chance. Yeah. Uh, If this podcast um, believes in one thing, it's let let artists make art <laughs> no matter what it is that they want to do. That's, That's a good tagline. There you go. All right. Uh, let's spin the wheel. See what our next show is. I'm going to solve. All right. Corno curl cabinet. It, we have landed on your Disney plus pick. 
which I have not updated. Is there a Disney Plus show that you would like to for us to talk about? We could take a new. We could take a shot at this new uh, Marvel series, Echo, which has gotten decent reviews. Okay. We could take a shot at that, and it's got a diverse. I mean, why not get into a Marvel series? It's not like we couldn't talk about industry stuff. Oh my god, there's industry stuff for days. Um, <laughs> let's just go Echo because it's new. And All right, it's something fresh. Talk about maybe people are watching it. Give me an excuse to watch it. I love it. So next yeah. up on PC TV, we're going to be talking about the Disney Plus series Echo. Ryan, thanks for uh, thanks for getting into the weeds of mega church culture with me here today. Uh, can I interest you in uh, buying uh, what a timeshare at my resort island in in South Carolina? Only if it's only if it's apocalypse ready. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. Oh, I can't believe well, we did well, the whole we'll all be raptured. So yeah. yeah, I can't believe we did the whole episode and didn't talk about the plague of locusts that descend on the gemstones. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! <laughs> or Bible bonkers. Yeah. We, uh, okay, we'll make one Bible bonkers reference. And uh, yeah, got it. All right. Uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Take care, everybody. Every episode starts out the same. Old baby Billy, he comes out like this. I make me some jokes, current events, hostiles, nothing edgy. We want to keep it light so we don't limit our audience. And then I introduce two families. I banner with them. I do some chit-chat. Maybe I kiss them on the cheek. And then one by one, they compete doing trivias from the Bible. Bible. It's right here. Uncle Baby Billy, isn't this just exactly the pitch for Family Feuds? Yeah, did you run this bass, Daddy? Why I got to run this by Eli? Unless you ain't got purchase power, you can't pull the trigger. No, no, we got purchase power. We can pull the triggers, homie. Then I suggest you pull the trigger on this here hit TV series. Go on, take it off the market. It's exactly Family Feuds. But it ain't no Family Feud. This is Baby Billy's Bible Bonkers. Bible bonkers. Baby Billy's Bible bonkers. Baby Billy Bible bonkers. Bible bonkers. Baby Billy Bible bonkers. Yeah, roll that around your mouth. That's fun, ain't it? You know what? I already know how I'm going to vote on this. If we just